0: Good morning. Once again, my name is Natalie Cole from the marketing team at Dickerson Insurance Services. We're very happy you could join us for today's webinar titled COVID Mandates, the No Surprises Act, the Transparency and Coverage Act, Insurance Broker Compensation Disclosure, and more. Before I introduce both of today's presenters, I want to let you know that we welcome your questions. Please enter them in the question box in the lower right-hand corner of your screen and we will answer them at the conclusion of this presentation. The first presenter we have today is Ms. Diana Miller. Diana Miller is the Vice President of Sales at Dickerson and has been with this agency for 13 years. She worked as the Director of Sales in Orange County and continually exceeded goal expectations. Her background extends decades in our industry and encompasses the thinking out of the box mentality to bring solutions to her clients where none were thought available diana how are you today
1: i'm doing great thank you so much natalie and thank you for uh that those kind words that i wrote myself so uh (laughs) that's what we do when we talk about what we're doing and what we can bring to the table for our brokers um i want to thank everybody for coming on the meeting today uh, it's going to be a very informative meeting, and I think this is important that you have the knowledge to be able to bring to your clients, Dickerson. Uh, is a general agency and we support our brokers 100 we act as their back office we bring solutions to the tables for those brokers and we also bring knowledge to the table for you to share with your clients and that's what the meeting today is all about it's bringing that knowledge that your clients need to have available to them so they know what's going on out there in the industry uh, you have a statewide representation here at dickerson we have sales executives throughout california please reach out to your dedicated sales executive for any of your needs from small group to large group to thinking like i said outside of the box when it comes to solutions for your clients that you think you cannot find a solutions for so whether it is ifp we do work um, in the IFP area as well. We have a dedicated rep for that. Um, but we also work in the self-funding, level funding, and fully insured products for our clients. Everything from medical to ancillary lines. Uh, we work with PEOs and payroll companies as well. So if you're out there, you're trying to find a solution for your client, reach out to your dedicated sales executive here at Dickerson. If you do not know who that is, please reach out to me and I will connect them with you. Um, And you know what, Natalie, that's about all I have to say today. Um, Let's go ahead and get this thing started.
0: Thank you so much, Diana, for that amazing presentation on Dickerson and what we offer. Our next presenter is Mr. David Norton. David has worked in human resources for more than 35 years and in his current role as human resources business partner, He supports multiple clients in the areas of human resources strategy, training, employee relations, employment law, talent management, succession planning, recruitment and retention, and documentation support, such as employee or safety handbooks. As a generalist, he is well-versed in operations, training, compensation, beliefs, and recruitment activities. So David, with an impressive bio, how are you this morning?
2: I'm doing very well, thank you, Natalie. I appreciate that. As everyone, are you able to hear me well enough? We can hear you. Okay, good, that's what I always like to hear on these things and verify it. Uh, just a little sidebar. Um, I see that the Dickerson organization is based in North Los Angeles. And while I am currently in Salt Lake City and have been up here since mid-1991. Uh, the first first half of my life and career uh, was in the Glendale, Burbank, La Crescenta area. So that's uh, that's home base for me. My first HR job was off of Las Feliz Boulevard, which I th- looks like it's just a couple miles away from your main office there. So there's a, a definite uh, uh, connection, I feel, automatically with your group. So we have a lot of things to be talking about. Uh first thing is the uh the requisite disclaimer that this is educational informative only this is not legal advice uh and a really important thing because i think we can agree that the whole vaccination topic in particular is highly polarized and has been highly politicized um regardless of anyone's personal or political views the purpose of the webinar today is to talk about what is in these mandates Um, and what employers need to be considering. This is not a recommendation or a uh, endorsement or a uh, takedown of any of the things. It simply is how things stand as of the morning of November the 11th. We're going to talk about the vaccination materials at the end, but there's some other things to cover before that. We're going to start off with the No Surprises Act. And this is the Elimination of Surprise Medical Billing uh, it's part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act, which President Trump signed into law uh, at the end of December last year. This goes into effect January the 1st. Uh, and it it's saying that insured people cannot be billed for a cost difference between in and out of network services if that individual had no real control over selecting the provider. So here are some examples of that. Uh, emergency, urgent care. Uh, air Ambulance, uh, the, the most common one, and many of us have, have encountered this, is you go to an in-network facility for a procedure and one of the providers is not a in-network and then all of a sudden you're getting an extra bill for, say, the anesthetist or the radiology or something. Um, and then there's uh, uh, no emergency out-of-network without giving people advance notice tied in with this is the transparency and coverage act this was earlier this came out in october of last year so 13 months ago Uh, originally intended to go into effect this coming january it has been delayed uh, at least six months due to the complexity involved and what the transparency and coverage is talking about is providing users with information about the costs for medical procedures, uh, standard practices, and prescription medications. So again, this was supposed to go into effect uh, in another six or seven weeks, uh, but it has now been kicked out to uh, mid-next year, and parts of it are delayed even farther into 2023 or even early 2024. So the purpose of this, again, is to have people Make comparisons for healthcare. If you're going to, you know, make a major purchase of a auto or a appliance or dishwasher or TV, you're going to be checking between the various uh, various retailers. And the idea here is to also be able to give people the option and the opportunity to do price checking between between various facilities. So the insurers are required to publish the rates for in and out of network services and again for the prescription drugs including the negotiated rates and the pricing history i think we all know that prescription drug pricing is can be all over the map my wife has a a particular medication which she absolutely needs to have and the price fluctuates quarter to quarter she gets a 90 day supply and it just is all over the map So this information is supposed to be in a machine-readable form, scannable form, by mid-year next year. That's where it stands at this point. Um, The price comparison tools and a phone guidance has been kicked back a full year. And the 500 most common procedures need to be posted by January next year, two years, January 2023, and all other procedures January 2024. There's a requirement in here to have an advanced EOB form. That's been delayed indefinitely, pending the government giving some guidance on it. Um, Provider directories, network participation, that still needs to be in place uh, with information by this coming January, but there's no official guidance has come out, so plans have been instructed to implement these rules using good faith, reasonable interpretation. Uh, until such time as official guidance comes out. Uh, now, for, for comparison, the hospital price transparency rule went into effect January of this year. Uh, and as of mid year, only 6% of the hospitals nationally were in compliance, uh, saying they're overwhelmed by COVID is the reason, and very little effort made by enforcement. So we just don't know how strong or how strict, how hot and heavy anyone's going to come down on enforcing. Any of these things—the no surprises or the transparency and coverage. Here's another topic, which is near and dear to many of your hearts: the insurance broker compensation disclosure. Um, again, the CAA put this into effect a year ago. Health insurance brokers must to uh, disclose the direct and indirect compensation for each plan. Disclosures are needed for commissions, for fees for service, and for performance. Um, this effectively is one year after it was signed, so the end of December this year, and at last checking, this has not been delayed or postponed. This is still moving full speed ahead. Now, the annual Form 5500 outlines a lot of these fees, but not at the level of detail that is being required. So, some issues to consider. Sometimes the full scope of the commission, fees for performance are not known in advance, so there's a modification allowing for this. Mid-September, Health and Human Services came out with a proposed rule uh, related to individual and short-term plans, nothing for group plans. That had a 60-day comment period, so that's coming up middle of next week, the comment period wraps up. Again, this is in a proposed mode only at this stage. Um, there's certainly a, an argument that the burden of disclosure should be on the carrier. It should not be on the individual brokers because the carriers should have the, the consistency. Uh, that's not fully understood. And again, Department of Labor is supposed to come out with a guidance on this. So, what's involved? The covered service providers uh, must provide to the health plan fiduciary the description of services. All direct and indirect compensation, how the compensation is divvied up, uh, if it's done on a per transaction, the relevant services have to be identified, who's getting the commissions, and if there's any sort of plan termination fee. Again, Department of Labor, Health and Human Services are expected to be issuing a rule on this, and people are expecting enforcement will be delayed, but nothing has been announced. And I think we can all understand with the. The uh, focus on uh, if the focus in in Congress in D.C. being on the vaccination thing and on the infrastructure uh, program and all these other things that are going on and, and hitting the news hourly, uh, this is just not a priority for a lot of people. But we'll certainly keep our eye on it. Okay, shifting gears here, health savings account contributions. So, IRS. Release the HSA account contributions for next year. It goes up $50 for self coverage and $100 for family coverage, and the catch up contribution remains the same. Um, The out of pocket maximums for high deductible plans also go up again, the same $50 for self coverage and $100 for family coverage. So that's on the HSAs. Uh, ACA, the uh, Obamacare, if you will, the out-of-pocket maximums on that. Uh, So it goes up to $8,700 for individual and $1,7400 for family, which is an awful lot, but that's what it's set up at. The maximum limits are less for people who have lower incomes, for those whose income is based off the federal poverty level, is between 100 and 200 percent of that the out-of-pocket is only 2900 for individual and 5800 for family and if you're between 200 and 250 percent of fpl then it goes to 6950 or 13,900. so it's all staggered based on based on income benefit plan audits this is a bit of a sidebar thing Uh, This goes back to 2019, well before COVID hit. And uh, a lot of things have changed, obviously, in the last two and a half years. But a new auditing standard came out uh, called standard number 136. Due to COVID, it got delayed for implementation until mid-December. But that's coming at us real quick. Uh, The changes here are the plan sponsor responsibilities that an auditor needs to be validated as being ERISA certified uh, and the certification received meets the ERISA requirements. And it also must be a written certification that the audit was conducted according to this Brickler ERISA section. Uh, and the audit has to be more transparent regarding the sponsor and auditor responsibilities. It also needs to say whether the audit was full scope or a more narrow nature. Plan sponsors will need to provide auditors with documentation regarding management responsibilities, how this is met, documentation regarding the practical day-to-day admin. And the the tricky one on this one is the draft copy of a Form 5500 for the current plan year. So while 5500s are usually done uh, for the plan year, which is just closed, if you're having an audit, you need to have a draft copy, rough sketch of the 55 for the current year to provide to the auditor. So that's probably the biggest change on this. Benefit statement changes. So we have secure, something we don't talk about a huge amount, but the setting every community up for retirement enhancement. You know, sometimes I think there's got to be someone in DC whose entire job is doing nothing but coming up with these acronyms someone had to work hard to get this but okay this is talking about anyone who's on a 401k or a defined contribution plan Uh, and these dc plans have to show each participant's account balance in the form of a single life annuity or a joint qualified joint and survivor the difference being a single life is just for the the pensioner the the recipient if you will Joint and Survivor is a different program where they set something up so that their spouse will continue to get benefits after they pass. Uh, And there's several, usually a 100%, 75%, and 50% option on these. For annual plan statements, this became effective a couple of months ago. And for those who are on a quarterly plan statement, uh, it's effective middle of next year. Uh, and among the requirements you have to have the beginning and ending state of the the statements, the value of the balance as of the last day, Uh, and again talking about the showing it as a, a single lifetime annuity or as a joint and survivor annuity. Explanation of each income stream must be attached. Department of Labor provided some model language which can be used for this. Uh, and as far it included some language for the the annuities. Um, TPAs are expected to be able to comply with this via software upgrades. Um, so if, if you stop and think, uh, a couple of years ago the form Form W-4 was changed and people were all concerned about what's going on and what's this all about. And the payroll companies changed their software and it was a very easy flip over once it was understood. Um, self-administered plans might find this a bit more challenging uh, and they may need to contract with a TPA or an actuarial firm to be compliant. Again, Department of Labor has provided some, uh, some model language uh, for what can be used and that's easily downloaded. Mental Health Parity Act. This is another one that's coming at us. Uh, although this actually went into effect uh, eight months ago. Uh, it was part of the CA, but con- some confusion remains. Basically, this is saying that mental health care, substance abuse care, this all has to be treated on par, equal to other medical or surgical care. So you have to determine the uh, uh, the dollar, dollar limitations, the days of treatment, medical necessity. It all has to be diamond cut diamond treated equally. Uh, and then an analysis sheet has to be provided to Department of Labor, IRS, or Health and Human Services, Regulators, plan Participants, and it wants to see the, uh, uh, that the health care and substance abuse treatments are not more restrictive than standard under the same policy. Certainly, you can have variations policy to policy, that's very normal in our world, but they want to see that within the same policy, the substance abuse stuff, the mental health care stuff is all true to the same, and As they told us in elementary school, show your work. They want to see what's going on with the methodology and the metrics. Okay, so we've gone through all of these things. And now to the part you're all really excited about and you're on the edge of your seat about. Updates to the FFCRA CARES Act, and then we'll be heading into the um, vaccination things. So, basically, the paid tax leave credits for sick pay and extended family medical leave, uh, that has all expired as of the end of September. We still get calls on a weekly basis. Do I still have to give sick pay to someone who has COVID? Do I still have to give FMLA to someone whose school is closed? Um, And you can give it, but there is no further tax credit available. You want to do it for employee retention purposes for morale purposes out of the goodness of your heart that's perfectly fine no one says you can't do it but there simply is no longer a tax credit for it um, the now the, the leave can and still be granted for some reasons for getting vaccinated this is all part of the new biden mandate we'll talk about uh and time needed to recover uh to com- accompany someone else state-by-state basis, California has its own things going on, but many of those, as we understand it, wrapped up the end of September as well. The COBRA subsidy likewise expired uh, at the end of September. We know we spent spring and summer with a lot of questions about how this was all working under ARPA. Uh, The qualified beneficiaries can still remain on COBRA, but there's no longer any sort of subsidy. There was a lot of discussion and question whether or not these things were going to be uh, extended and they were not. So that is all in the rearview mirror at this point. Uh, And then uh, employee retention tax credit, that part of the CARES Act is still in place through January 1st, 2022. Okay, here we go. The big topic, the vaccination and testing requirements. To say this is a contentious issue is definitely an understatement. Lots of controversy, lots of polarization, lots of politicization. Uh, We see it on the news on a daily basis. Situation is changing on a daily basis as well. There are some updates to this slide deck that I just did about... 7:30 this morning because uh, i saw in the my morning news feed that oh a couple little things got changed uh the main one of that being that with the uh, uh injunction against implementing the uh, uh the osha emergency temporary standard that's been tested in court or is going to be tested in court you may recall it got released on a week ago today gosh was it only a week week ago today on the 4th, it came out, was published in the Federal Register on Friday the 5th. A court in Louisiana put a block on it on Saturday the 6th. Um, Monday and Tuesday there was some activity, and they announced yesterday that there will be a court hearing on Tuesday the 16th about it all. And it's very, very probable that this is going to end up at the Supreme Court for a final determination. but. I don't think anyone expects the Supreme Court decision, regardless of which way they go, is going to be the end of the topic. You may remember there was an election last year that the Supreme Court made a ruling on that, and of course everyone just forgot about the election, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, this is an interesting little problem. Is me. Oh, I, my appearance thing didn't set up right. Sorry about that. So, there are three separate mandates going on here. Uh, The first one is federal contractors. A final vaccination dose has to be done by January the 4th, and therefore someone is deemed fully vaccinated as of January the 18th. Now, this is a change that just came out last Friday. Uh, The original had said fully done by January 4th, which meant people had to be vaccinated by December 21st lots of dates here, I'm sorry, um, but they clarified this thing. This was just published uh, on, on the uh, um, whichever website uh, on Tuesday. Uh, and federal contractors do not have a testing option. Those in the healthcare industry must receive the first dose no later than December the 5th, which is 30 days after the rule was published last week. Second dose no later than January 4th, which is 60 days after it was published. And there is not a testing option for either the federal contractors or the healthcare workers. You must be vaccinated. Testing is not uh, permissible. Then, if you have uh, 100 or more employees nationally, uh, as of December 5th, unvaccinated workers must be masked and unvaccinated workers must undergo testing on a weekly basis january 4th which is 60 days after publication again this is how this is all all standing as of thursday november the 11th pending whatever the courts might do uh the uh, the general belief is that the courts are going to do something whether they vacate the entire standard whether they vacate all three of them whether they maintain all of it take certain bits and parts and parcels out There's a lot of bookmakers in Las Vegas and Reno and Atlantic City. Would be happy to talk to you for your opinion. So, some additional info. Uh, There's there's calling on states to adopt vaccination requirements for school employees. Uh, As we mentioned a couple slides ago, covered employers are required to provide paid time off. Which is four hours for a vaccination and quote reasonable time, whatever that might be for someone who has a allergic reaction or some sort of feeling sick from getting the vaccination. Uh note that there is not a tax credit offered for this. That is one of the things being being challenged and being litigated. Whereas under the FFCRA there were tax credits available for this paid time off. There is not the credit offered similarly that may be an oversight they may put something in on that but that's how it stands as of the moment uh call to increase the number of tests which are available including the at-home rapid tests Um, but there's a click to that we'll talk about in a moment Uh, now the employers with 100 plus uh big thing, home testing is not allowed. It has to be done and verified by a neutral party. You can go ahead and, and buy the test kit, but uh, someone who's neutral, not your spouse, not your kid, has to verify it. The 100% threshold is based on the total organization headcount. So they're looking at primarily the commonality of safety because OSHA being Occupational Safety and Health Association uh, or Administration. uh They're looking at the safety coming out, but also, do you have the same payroll system? Do you have the same benefits for everyone? Do you have the same handbook and policies? Is the senior management team the same, regardless of how many might be in any individual EIM? One of the client companies that we work with here in Utah on a regular basis is. Uh, They have a string of of gas stations uh, from San Diego up to Montana all along the I-15 corridor. And any given gas station uh, certainly only has 8, 10, maybe 12 employees at the 24 hours and have a convenience store. Um, But overall, they've got 150 employees. Even though they have 23 different businesses with 23 different EINs, yeah, They fall into this because they have one benefits program, one payroll system, one common ownership. Now, this does not apply to fully remote workers who are never on site, but never means never. Uh, If you're coming on site for a meeting, for any sort of uh, a call-in event you need, and you're not vaccinated, you need to be tested. Um, No one's really sure how this is going to get enforced. And employers have the option to pay for the testing or to pass the cost to workers. And the various labor organizations are understandably concerned about this. And again, this is part of the litigations that are going on. So, regardless of which of these policies and what stands and what doesn't, we're going to talk now about vaccination policies in broad general terms. Okay. Uh, Employers certainly have the right. To require that employees are vaccinated based on from 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 the standard uh requirement that an individual shall not pose a direct threat to the health or safety of individuals in the workplace so as long as this is consistent with federal state municipal laws it's job-related consistent with business necessity and you're allowing accommodations for medical and religious exceptions talk more about that basically there's four ways of approaching uh vaccination it is not an all or nothing thing okay, you have a voluntary policy hey if you're vaccinated great if you're not great uh you can go into a hybrid policy so require it for those who have face to face interactions with the public those who are on site only those who are in high transmission areas or certain job categories so you absolutely are allowed to have an alternate policy and and pick and choose on this or you can go with the the other end, opposite of voluntary, which is the the mandated for all. Uh, everyone everyone who works here has to have it. And again, employers of any size certainly have the the right to set up their business as is necessary. You want to have a phased implementation based on the needs. And these are the things that we had talked about. For example, the you have a first dose, then you have to wait three or four weeks, then a second dose, and then two weeks after that, you're considered fully vaccinated. So it needs to be a phased program. We saw with the um, the, the OSHA ETS that it's a, a 30 and 60 day windows here. Things to consider: uh, again, you want to review the federal, state, local regs for your industry and locations where you have employees. Uh, really strong suggestion. Do a survey of your workforce, an anonymous survey. Find out how many folks are vaccinated or are planning to get vaccinated. If you have 10% of your workforce vaccinated and 90% not, is a far different cry from 90% yes and 10% no. Um, so it's really critical to know that. And you can just do a, a, a real simple one-pager, you know, no name, no ID of any kind. Are you vaccinated? Yes, no. If not, are you planning on it? Yes, no and then you have some numbers to work off of. Uh, Implement an educational campaign about the benefits and the actual risks of the vaccines. Uh, Offer incentives and institute penalties and mandate with with stiffer consequences up to unpaid suspensions. Now, the other side of this is that there are some employers who have contacted us uh, who have said, we don't want anyone vaccinated working here is it all right if we discharge anyone who says they're vaccinated we don't want them here well that's a different kind of problem well you can fire someone who's not vaccinated why can't i fire someone who is vaccinated interesting question uh and again this is something that the courts are going to be sorting out for a long time on this whole thing Policy requirements. Communication, important. Create a written policy, including the why, when, who, what if, uh, details of any sort of paid leave, process for providing the proof, um, set up the uh, communicated process for exemptions and accommodation requests. And then you want to maintain the confidentiality of the medical records, including the vaccination status. Now, incentivizing vaccinations, employers are allowed to offer incentives to employees to become vaccinated voluntarily as long as the nature of the incentive is not discriminatory and not so substantial, quote, as to be coercive. So you'd be giving compensable, reimbursable time to get the vaccine and recuperate, could offer bonuses, gift cards, raffles, paid time off, and coercive is unofficially defined as any amount over two weeks' pay. For a while, they were talking about a flat rate—a hundred bucks, five hundred bucks, a thousand bucks—but that really depends on what ratio that is to some individual's income. You know, for for some people, a thousand bucks is a very substantial, important amount. For other people, a thousand bucks is, yeah, okay. Uh, it just depends on where someone is is seated. Penalties for a uh, refusal to vaccinate. People can be barred from being on site in the workplace or from going to client sites. Uh, benefit premium surcharges, those are capped at 30% of the premium and certainly can affect your ACA affordability calculations for doing the ACA reporting and the 1095 reporting. Uh, people can be put on an unpaid leave, uh until they are vaccinated or terminated for failing to comply so these are these options and uh, again the the masking thing um you can certainly put in requirements for those who aren't vaccinated uh, require them to require wear masks and again if you're over 100 employees you you have to be doing this submit to weekly testing do the social distancing Um, have alternate work schedules, uh, restrict the access to certain areas of the workplace, and prohibit any sort of business travel. Now, exceptions and exemptions. The exceptions are for qualifying medical reasons or sincerely held religious beliefs. Now, this is probably the biggest thing that we're dealing with for the time being. Um... At, at least at our office, is we're getting three and four calls a day or or scans per day on people asking for exemptions uh, for whatever reasons. Um, employers are, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of stammering on this because it's such a, a challenging topic to, to deal with, you don't want to just roll over and if someone requests an exemption granted automatically, you also probably don't want to go hard nose and refuse all of them. It needs to be done on the infamous case-by-case basis. It depends. Those words that we all love so very much. Um, one reason to, to deny something would be if you can demonstrate that the individual will pose a direct threat to the health and safety of the employee or others. Or it will, you know, create an undue hardship. For example, you know, an employer can't very well give an exemption to the entire workforce uh, and have everyone if, if they're falling into one of these uh, one of these mandate categories. Um, common thing with the sincerely held religious belief is those who are saying that there's been fetal cells used for making the vaccine, and that's against my religious beliefs for aborted babies and and that. Um, if you do some, do some looking, the Pfizer vaccine very clearly says that none of those things, none of the stem cells are used in the vaccine. There's absolutely no stem cell or anything in the vaccine, uh, treatment. Uh, yes, it was used during the research. They were injecting to see what the, uh, results were, but there is no part of the vaccine itself. So if someone brings up this, uh, The uh, reason you can say, well, Pfizer is safe for you, you can go get a vaccine with Pfizer. Probably they won't like it, but that is something that the research has has come up with. Qualifying medical reasons, there's just a couple of reasons with some rare diseases, some chemotherapy situations. Um, Sometimes someone can have an allergy. But again, there's three different vaccines out there with three different makeups. So if you're allergic to one, very likely you're not allergic to the other two. Uh, so it needs to all be all be sorted out. Uh, you know, like as as I mentioned, this is very uh, complicated. Um, you can require supporting documentation on things, and the biggest part really is make sure that there's no one, no retaliation. Uh, people are have their reasons for asking for these exemptions and that's fine. Just treat it in, in a, a neutral manner and don't, uh, don't have issues with it afterward. Consequences. Um, if an employee is refusing to comply with what basically the safety protocol termination is okay. And there are some States where uh, someone who is terminated cannot collect unemployment benefits because of, the reasons here. Uh, on the other side, employers have to be paying attention to all of this stuff. Um, risks, resources, defending if it's legally challenged, being short-staffed if a lot of people quit, uh, impacts to morale, productivity, and allegiance. So uh, anyone who thinks there's an easy answer or a definitive answer to any of this vaccination mandate, uh, is either really, 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 really smart or a bit confused. What we want to do is, you know, seek guidance, you know, check with legal counsel, verify the federal, state, municipal mandates, um, federal, state agencies, and certainly you can call, uh, call HR service. Okay. Here we go. Question time. I think I've covered most everything. hope I covered most everything. But uh, Natalie, do we have any questions that have popped up?
0: Yes, we do. Um, Let's see. How does California's privacy laws relate to asking medical questions of those who request an exemption?
2: basically someone will be coming forward and saying I want an exemption due to medical um and you could say all right we need a doctor to provide a certification uh, again in the, within the medical profession uh they understand that there's only a couple of particular cancer situations a couple of particular allergy situations which call for a uh, not getting a vaccine so you, you can certainly require that a doctor signs off on this uh, beyond that, you really do not want to go probing and digging very deeply uh, It's not a you, you just don't want to get into the ADA stuff you don't want to get into uh, having too much unnecessary knowledge. If someone says i want a medical uh, a medical exemption for being vaccinated, great we need a note from a doctor that gives us some sort of details on it. Uh we we've seen I, I I think in the last three weeks I've seen two requests for medical, both with people undergoing chemo, um and probably a dozen religious ones, almost all based on this fetal stem cell research thing, which as I mentioned, the Pfizer vaccine for anyone who does their does the homework, it's not really hard. You just Google up um, you know, Pfizer plus stem cell research, and it all comes up pretty quickly.
0: And it doesn't look like we actually have any more questions besides that one.
2: Really? That's uh, good. I'm I'm glad. A uh, little surprised because I did this presentation three weeks ago, and I had uh, 83 questions. We had time for 20, and I had to send 63 emails, so I remember it well. Um, but but great, if this is working for everyone and everyone's got the information, uh, I think we're all set. Um great. Just, just, add, just add here that if you have any questions or need help with uh, any sort of HR compliance, uh, contact us. We're in Salt Lake City, but we operate on a national basis.
0: Um, Sounds great. Thank you so much, David Norton, and thank you, Diana Miller, earlier for the presentation. Once again, everyone, thank you for joining us. We're going to post a link um, to this webinar on our website within the next 24 to 48 hours. And of course, I will be sending a thank you um, email with a copy of this presentation included as well as as a link to the recording for your um, for your information. Um, And of course, if you have any questions, I am not the expert, but David Norton here is. And of course, you see here how to contact him. Um, That being said, thank you, everyone, and have a great rest of your Thursday and weekend shortly. Thanks, everyone.